Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for joining me. I am very excited to have Lovejoy Boatler with me today. He has had an interesting and varied career. He has worked in the Mississippi legislature. He has worked on the Mississippi River as a deckhand, taught construction skills to disadvantaged youth, and has taught music education in public schools, among other things. And he is here to talk about his book, Crooked Snake, The Life and Times of Elbert Leopard. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to have you. Well, thank you. Yes. So some of this book is about you and your experience as the victim of a kidnapping in 1968 but it primarily focuses on your kidnapper, a man who was a murderer and prison escape artist. How did you first decide to put your experience on paper? How did it expand into basically a biography of of the man who kidnapped you? And what was the the writing process like? Well, the the process came about when I was in my, my early 40s, and I was doing some writing. I had written a couple of fiction manuscripts. I had an agent who was interested in one of them, but I felt like it really wasn't going to go anywhere. And my wife, trying to be helpful, said, well, why don't you write about that day you were kidnapped? Well, I thought it would be an interesting story, but it would be more of a short story. But I knew that my mother in 1968 when I graduated from high school and that event occurred, that she had made a scrapbook. So I began, I thought about it for a while and uh, decided I would look at the scrapbook. I don't even think I read the articles in there when I was 18 years old, but I did find the scrapbook. I began to read those articles about this one kidnapper who had abducted me that day. And it talked about his other escapes from Parchman Penitentiary. In fact, there were six escapes in all. It talked about people who had been 
kidnapped like me or robbed or tied up. The articles told about law enforcement officers who were on the manhunts and uh, convicts who had escaped with Leopard. He always was the leader of the escapes over these six escapes. And so for the first time, I realized that what happened to me that day was a very small part of a much bigger story. But what that story was, I really didn't know. So I just began um, a hunt to determine if any of these people from the early 1960s, and in some cases the 1950s, could still be alive. I would eventually interview about 70 people who all had an encounter with Albert Leopard, whether they were people who had been abducted or something had happened to them. It was the biggest story of their life. No one had ever asked them about it or law enforcement officers who had been on the manhunts. And in some cases, I was able to find these old parole convicts who had actually escaped with Albert Leopard. So I would eventually do, I would guess, probably about 600 pages of transcripts. And uh, from that, it became the source for putting the book Crooked Snake, The Life and Crimes of Albert Leopard, together. And um, my process, I just pretty much did a very straightforward telling of the story. You know, my interest uh, in writing about Crooked Snake and just the journey that I went on. And um, that's kind of the way that would, that would go. Why is the book called Crooked Snake? Yeah, well, Albert Leopard was born in central Mississippi in a county called Atala County into a very lawless region of that county, the big hills in Atala County, that in some ways when you would go back in there, you almost back in the 1900s. And there was a creek that ran through the valley called Cineash, which is a Choctaw word uh, meaning crooked snake. So that's where the double meaning of the title came from. Obviously, crooked snake referring to Albert Leopard, and yet crooked snake referring to the Cineash Valley and the creek that ran through the valley. So yeah, let's talk about Albert Leopard. Leopard's father was an itinerant sharecropper, correct? Right. Who liked to drink to excess. Right. Albert's father, Otis, was, uh, was a sharecropper. And the family moved around with him wherever his work would be, be it in Florida or in the Mississippi Delta, wherever there was work to be had. Albert and all of his siblings were illiterate. They never had an opportunity to go to school. And Albert's mother, Ruby, most folks said that Ruby was a little off. And, uh, but Albert really loved his mother. But Otis was really a, a bad drunk. He had a very affable personality when he was sober. 
but uh, when he was drinking, he got pretty mean and uh, had a hard time holding down jobs with landowners. So that's that's essentially there what what that was. And he, uh, after the travels around and the sharecropping wherever they would go, or you know picking fruit or picking cotton, they would generally return to the Cineash Valley to a place there called the Hemingway Place. And so that's primarily where they grew up. So as a boy, Elbert started dabbling in illegal activities, moonshine specifically. Yeah, when Albert was a boy, about 10 years old, to make pocket change, he would uh, deliver moonshine for a moonshiner there in Tala County, Leon Turner. Leon Turner was very infamous in his own right. But Albert would uh, go out on Highway 14, which at that time was just a gravel road through the country. And he would tape his bottles of moonshine to the inside of a rubber tire, and he would roll the tire down the gravel road, and customers in the know would stop and buy you know, their weekly allotment from Albert. And uh, he would turn the money back into Leon Turner. And uh, so that's where Albert got his more or less lawless start. And there was lots of violence in the Leopard House. And- a lot of violence, yeah. Uh, when Otis would get drunk, there was one particular encounter that a lady told me that uh, that her her husband, who was Albert's brother, told her about his dad, Otis, coming in one night, and he was drunk. And he was mad at Albert's sister, uh, Jessie D, because she had snuck off or, you know, she had done some, something that wasn't really that serious, but he was drunk. And uh, and as uh, Cella Lomax said, uh, what it ended up being, he, he stripped her completely naked and threw her out on the front porch in the freezing cold and made her sleep out on the porch. And, of course, the boys rushed in and jumped him, and he uh, turned round and round like a -a tilt-a-whirl, slinging them off, and gradually staggered on back to the bedroom and pretty much passed out on the bed. And Albert snuck her a blanket out to wrap up in, but uh, Otis was, uh, you know, he was just a bad fighter. And his uncles, his brother, Otis's brothers were Albert's uncles. They were all just, uh, they were all very lawless people. Uh, very quick to uh, pull a pistol or pull a knife, uh, whatever the occasion called for. And so Albert was influenced by not only his father, but his uncles. One of the, the significant moments in his life, which really changes him, is when his mother dies, right? Right. Albert's mother passed away when he was, I think he was 14 years old. And uh, Albert was, uh, you know, took it, took it very hard. And uh, relatives would say that Albert went to the cemetery, Salem Cemetery, 
and would sleep by her grave at night. And uh, so that's, and, and much of his life, even on his escapes, uh, he would often make his way back to Atala County to visit his mother's grave. So he had a very close connection with his mother. And, uh, but they were just, they were very, very poor. You just cannot imagine. Uh, as I say in Crooked Snake, they were lower than the cows and horses. And, um, you know, that, I mean, that's just how poor they were. And everybody would say, you just, you just can't imagine how they lived. Leopard had a really distinct look, right? Well, Albert, yeah. Albert was, uh, he was really a small fella. He wasn't, you know, taller than about 5'6", and probably didn't weigh more than 135 pounds in his life. But as one convict would tell me, that uh, he was literally the toughest man he ever met in his life. And Albert, when he was on the run, would not cut his hair, and he had the kind of hair that just kind of tended to grow straight up. And, of course, he was uh, Scotch-Irish, the family. He had red hair, kind of ruddy complexion. So the uh, his hair would just kind of be growing straight up kind of like it was on fire or something. Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much the way he looked. Right, right. So tell us, if you would, about Mary Young, Leopard's great-aunt, and how he and his cousin, Joe Edwards, decided to rob her on February 18, 1959. Well, Albert and his first cousin, Joe, Joe Edwards, uh, they were... They were pretty much companions. Joe was illiterate, just like Albert was. And uh, they had gotten into some trouble in Kosciuszko, which is the county seat of Atala County, and spent about 10 days in jail. Of course, Albert had walked off before he he served his time. But uh, Joe needed or wanted to go to New York State to be with some of his wife's family, thinking that he might have a better opportunity up there for work. So he and Albert got together and started talking about where he could get the money for the bus ride to New York. And Albert, uh, you know, said that their great aunt, Mary Young, had money. And so they concocted a scheme to go to her house Mary Young was 74. She was a widow. She lived on a small farm and uh, had had a few cattle and uh, just a few livestock that she she uh, tended and sold from time to time just to get by. So Albert and Joe did go there on kind of a, a cold, raw day. She welcomed, welcomed them in and uh, pulled some chairs over by the... Uh, the wood stove, but uh, Joe was calm, but Albert was was real nervous, and uh, the conversation escalated, and Albert told her that they had come to get her money, and it eventually, uh, what occurred, she was uh, thrown on the bed, and, uh, you know, they were asking her, where her money was, where her money was. 
and she finally said she had sold a yearling bull that very day and had some money in a trunk at the end of the bed, locked up. So she told them where her money was, and uh, they're different accounts because Joe tells his story and Albert tells his story, and they both point the finger at the other one as the real killer of Mary Young. But they found a pistol, and they, uh, she was hit over the head. Then they tied her up. Then they doused her with kerosene and set her on fire. So she literally burned alive, and they fled the house. And, of course, they were on the run for several days until they were finally caught. But it was a very uh, heinous murder, torch murder, of just a very, the most innocent person you can imagine. She was very much loved in the community. But Joe was caught on a bus uh, on the way to New York City, and Albert had fled to his brother's house over in Alabama. And they were both caught. They were extradited back to uh, Mississippi to face trial. They were both tried uh, in Italia County at the courthouse there. And uh, Albert's attorney wanted to uh, ask the, the, the judge if there could be a sanity hearing for Albert. And while the judge was considering this motion, he went ahead and put Joe Edwards on trial first. And Joe was uh, sentenced to life in prison. And Albert uh, never went to trial. Uh, there was just a plea bargain. The, uh, the judge gave the attorneys the opportunity just to plea bargain since Joe had already been given a life term by his jury that the judge would give Albert a life term. And so that's what he did. And so they both received uh, life terms. They did not get the death sentence. And they would both go to a Parchman Penitentiary. Yeah, that, that was unusual, right? Considering the brutality of the crime. Well, there was, uh, there was sentiment in the community for the two boys. And uh, for whatever reason, they, they weren't able to uh, get a death penalty. And so they would go uh, to Parchman. But they both pointed the finger at each other, and the animosity between them started at that point. And they were put in different camps at Parchman. You know, Parchman Penitentiary was about a 20,000-acre farm in Mississippi. And I had no walls or anything of that nature. Uh, It's just such a large uh, amount of land there that prisoners really had a hard time escaping. And Parchman had some of the the best bloodhounds in the world. And... uh, and at that time, it was a working farm, and, and you know, you were in, in a camp, Camp 1, Camp 2, Camp 3, separated about a mile or so away from one another. So Albert and Joe were put in separate camps and really would not see each other for the rest of their lives. And um, at that time, I'm not sure how the law is today, but if you are were sentenced to life, you know, you didn't get the death penalty. 
you were sentenced to life, if you did 10 years of what they call good time, you didn't get in trouble, you know, you were pretty much a model prisoner, after 10 years you would be eligible for parole. And Joe was pretty much a, a model prisoner, although most folks thought Joe was a real sneaky kind of guy, but he never gave anybody trouble. And he was paroled in 10 years. And Joe would go on to become a Pentecostal preacher, if you can believe that. But Albert took another track uh, over his 14 years at Parchman. He escaped six times. Uh, all of the escapes were different. Uh, one escape, the 1963 escape, escape, took him across the country with uh, two other convicts all the way to Tijuana, Mexico. And until he was, you know, he was eventually captured. But um, Albert, you know, some some of the, the, the greener convicts were afraid of him, although he was a small man, just the nature of his crime. And then some of the old hardened convicts kind of thought his behavior was amusing. But uh, Albert spent quite a bit of time, seven years of his 14 years at Parchman. He was in maximum security. Uh, he would always be put in maximum security uh, to cool off after one of his escapes and his capture. So, um, yeah, that's kind of the way all that went. I mean, he escaped. He escaped in 1961, 1962, 1963, 1964, 1968, when he kidnapped me, and 1973. Those were the years of his six escapes from the penitentiary. Yeah, amazing. I, I want to ask you about that, but, but, but if you don't mind, I would for a moment like to go back to Mary Young. Because in your book, there is a, a sense that Leopard is protective of his siblings, very close with his family. Mary Young was his great aunt. But there's a, a suggestion, right, that Leopard might have had some resentment towards Mary. Right. Can you ex explain that? Yeah, well, I was told by people that when, when Albert's father, Otis, was, was drunk or wherever he would be, and uh, Ruby, his mother, with the six kids, they were just indigent, really. And Ruby developed tuberculosis. So Mary Young, Albert's great aunt, took Ruby in and became her caregiver. And um, toward the end of Ruby's life, she was quarantined away from the children. And Albert just you know, as a child and, and not really understanding and putting things together in his mind in an incorrect way, blamed Mary Young for his mother's death and would tell people later that Mary Young mistreated his mother, which everyone would say that that was not true and Mary Young was really kind to take them in and do all that. So I don't know if he was actually remembering something or in some small way he was trying to make up something to justify the crime that he committed. But uh, that, 
was kind of the root of that situation that in Albert's mind, at least that's what he would say, that Mary Young mistreated his mother. Back again after this brief break. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Throughout history, royals across the world were notorious for incest. They married their own relatives in order to consolidate power and keep their blood blue. But they were oblivious to the havoc all this inbreeding was having on the health of their offspring. From Egyptian pharaohs marrying their own sisters to the Habsburgs' notoriously oversized lower jaws. I explore the most shocking incestuous relationships and tragically inbred individuals in royal history. And that's just episode one. On the History Tea Time podcast, I profile remarkable queens and LGBTQ plus royals, explore royal family trees, and delve into women's medical history and other fascinating topics. I'm Lindsay Holiday, and I'm spilling the tea on history. Join me every Tuesday for new episodes of the History Tea Time podcast, wherever fine podcasts are enjoyed. Let Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. I also host the number one sleep podcast in the world called Sleep Cove, where millions drift off to meditations, hypnosis and bedtime stories. We soon realised that listeners wanted to hear our mystery stories all in one place. So we created Mysteries at Midnight, where you can listen to all new tales every week. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. So why don't you pick a story now? And can you guess the twist? And we are back again. After they had left her on the bed and set the house on fire to to cover up their crime and and make it look like an accident, a piece of tin, part of the roof, fell on Mary's body and protected it partly from the fire. So people who came to investigate could see that she had a gag in her mouth. So assumably, if that piece of roof hadn't fallen on her, they would have likely gotten away with it. Yeah, they might have gotten away with it if, if the tin piece of, uh, as they said in those days, sheet iron, you know, a piece of tin, did fall partially on her and uh while her lower torso was consumed her upper torso you know was not burned up and yeah that's 
exactly what they found. And it was, uh, you know, it was almost a surreal event that night when folks looked out and they saw, you know, the bright light on the horizon and, um, you know, they began to move in that direction and discovered it was her house on fire. And, you know, most people would think that, uh, she had, uh, you know, maybe knocked a lamp over or just something of that nature. But, uh, you know, when they, they discovered her in the middle of just the charred remains of her house there, and as you said, they discovered the remnants of a gag tied around her mouth, which I didn't say earlier, but, yeah, they had tied a gag around her mouth, tied her hands together. And so they knew then she had been she had been murdered, and so they the sheriff arrived, and he called for a man over in neighboring Walnut Grove to bring his bloodhounds over. The man's name was Golden. He arrived with his two dogs, but they discovered, you know, the dogs were on the hunt, but what Albert had done is they built smaller fires down in the woods, two smaller fires to, uh, apparently he knew how to break their scent trail. And so the dogs couldn't really pick up a scent, but somehow Golden knew and told the sheriff, that, you know, he said, I, I tell you, it's going to be two of them, two fellows that have done this. But they weren't able to actually track them that night. And, um, so they ran down through the pine trees, you know, right after the murder of Mary Young, and they uh, divided the money up. I think they both got about $170 a piece. And, uh, you know, from there they went on their separate ways until they were, they were captured. So how did the sheriff connect Leopard and his cousin to Mary Young's murder? several ways. Willie McDaniel, who told me about being up there that night, in fact, he said he, he was 18 years old at that time, and he walked over to Mary Young's remains to have a look for himself, and he said he shone the flashlight down on her face, and, and one eye, just deep in her skull, was looking back at him, and he said that really bothered me for a long time. But he said he and his brother and their father, one of Albert's uncles, there was no more they could do. So they, they were out there all night and they went back home. They all worked for the uh, forestry department. And, uh, you know, they walked in, you know, stomping their feet and, and uh, you know, the smell of bacon in the house. Or their mother was cooking breakfast for them. And she asked Willie's dad, her husband, you know, while they were out all night. And he said, well, somebody's burn up Miss Mary. And Willie said, his mother said, oh, my God, that's going to be Albert and Joe. Apparently, the older folks knew that those two boys were not up to any good. And so the leopard uncles all got together that morning to discuss what they had seen, what anybody had seen. And so while Albert and Joe were supposed to have actually been in Jackson, which was about 60 miles away, 
visiting an aunt in the hospital, one of the uncles said he saw them walking out across a pasture uh, in the general direction of Mary Young's house in the, uh, up in the hills. And then so the sheriff got involved, of course, and uh, Joe was married and Joe, Joe's wife. Well, this came a little later, though. This came a little later when he met with her. But pretty much the evidence anybody could present, it all pointed to Albert and Joe being involved in this. Yeah, I, I was really surprised that Leopard so readily confessed. They asked him if he did it, and he told him that he did. Yeah, Albert, Albert, everybody would tell you, particularly convicts, that he was truthful. He wouldn't lie to you. So Albert just confessed, this is what I did. This is, you know, this is what Joe did. But Joe had a totally different story, which was very, uh, you know, minimized anything that he did at all. And that's where the animosity began, uh, between the two of them began. Because, uh, you know, in my, my estimate, I think Joe was always lying. And most folks really thought that. And Albert was just very truthful. I mean, he, you know, he picked up a hammer. Or he hit her with a hammer. Joe, uh, Joe got the match, you know, got the, the kerosene, the lamp. And, but uh, Joe just threw every bit of it on Albert. And uh, just different fellows in the way they're going to approach that, I suppose. Yeah, and, and you got a chance to to talk to Joe face-to-face. Well, yeah, I did. I, uh, I, I knew that Joe was still living, and uh, he was 74 at the time, I believe, and he was coming through Jackson. Well, I called him. You know, a family member gave me his phone number. I called him and told him, you know, I was writing a book about, about Albert. I didn't know what he would, we, he would say. But he broke down and started crying over the phone. And I had to wait a minute or so until he composed himself. And, uh, you know, he said, that, that boy really messed me up. But he said he would uh, be glad to meet with me. So we met at Waffle House in Jackson. And uh, Joe pretty much stuck to the same story he had told 50 years before that Albert did it all. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't do anything. And, uh, you know, he talked about what he did, what he currently did and had been doing all these years as a, a Pentecostal minister. But, you know, as the conversation was concluding, uh, he mentioned Mary Young and referred to her as that old lady. And I thought that was kind of a curious thing to say, given the fact that he was a Pentecostal minister and she wasn't just an old lady. She was, you know, she had been someone's child and someone's wife, someone's friend. So, uh, you know, we just, we concluded our our conversation and, uh, and, and left. And he told me to come down to his home in South Louisiana anytime and we would uh, talk some more. But I never did try to see uh, Joe Edwards again. Yeah, well, so you've already talked a bit about Parchman Prison. And yeah, one of the recurring characters in your story, the prison itself, because he keeps 
leaving it and then forcibly taken back. And Leopard builds quite a relationship with that prison over the years. And you mentioned he'd be thrown into maximum security for a while on every return and then inevitably let back out onto work details, which would then give him another easy opportunity over and over and over again to escape. He would just run off into the woods when the guards weren't looking, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, he really would. His first escape in 1961, he escaped by himself. And um, you just have to understand Parchman Prison. And you, and you say prison, you're thinking like of a, a building or something, but a prison farm of 20,000 acres, that's a pretty vast amount of land with uh, swamps and all kinds of critters and, you know, pretty dangerous, really. But he escaped in 61, his first escape by himself. He told uh, the boss out in the field, you know, that was the trustee who was guarding the prisoners. You know, he said, I got to go. I got to go. And uh, Paul said, okay, you know, don't be long. And, you know, he took his roll of toilet paper and ran down a bank and just kept on going. It was in the winter and he swam the Sunflower River and uh, he was eventually captured. You know, that was kind of a learning attempt for him as far as an escape in 61. In uh, 62, he escaped with uh, three other guys. And, uh, you know, that was when people got tied up and robbed. And and uh, one reason for that escape, actually, in 62, was that when the leopards were sharecropping, about five years before all of that, over in that area around Benoit, uh, Otis Leopard, Albert's father, had gotten drunk. And the sheriff blew Vance over there, threw him in jail. Well, the jail in Benoit was just on the city square. It was just a pen out there. Didn't have a roof. It was just a pen. And uh, so the word got out back to the Leopards on uh, the farm where they were they were picking cotton and doing that sort of thing. And they all went down there and uh, they just rocked the pen until they uprooted it from the ground and, and hustled Otis into a car and sped away to Itala County. But Albert stayed there in Benoit and he wanted to even the score with Blue Vance. And some of the uh, fellows over there who knew him were teasing him about you know, Blue Vance throwing his daddy in jail. And so that night, Leopard was in a cafe there, and and the sheriff came in for a nightly cup of coffee, and Leopard got into a confrontation with him. And uh, about getting the best of Blue Vance, although he was a big man and Leopard was a small guy, but as I said earlier, uh, Leopard was really tough. And a friend of uh, Blue Vance's came in, and Vance managed to get up off the floor where Albert had laid him out and came down on Albert's head with a, a nightstick. And, you know, he just, as I say in the book, he just crumpled like a beer can to the floor. 
and um, he was taken to Rosedale. A few miles away, an old country doctor sewed up uh, Albert's scalp, put a whole bunch of stitches, I think around 40 stitches in his head. And uh, as someone told me who was there, said uh, the, the old doctor didn't deaden it or anything and didn't, and Albert just, he just took those stitches without a whimper. And uh, so he was thrown in jail for assaulting a police officer and, uh, you know, disorderly conduct and whatever the charges were. But he was finally released about a week later and he went back to out to uh, Tala County. So years would go by. So the 62 escape occurred where they stole a car and uh, they were speeding, you know, away from Parchman. And uh, Albert's intent, he was the leader, his intent was to have a confrontation with Blue Vance again. So that night, they had they were on foot and they had crept into Benoit. And Blue Vance was making his rounds with his patrol car. And uh, he stopped at, a, at I think, the, the only stoplight there in Benoit. And the convicts rushed. You know, there were four of them. The convicts rushed from the dark. Leopard yanked the door open and began to uh, pummel Blue Vance and Blue Vance saw who he was and and just hollered out, uh, "Don't kill me, Leopard!" And Leopard said, "I'm I'm not gonna kill you, you big fat sob, but you are gonna get an ass whipping if you don't give us this car." So they were about to get the the best of Blue Vance, and he managed to get his foot on the accelerator, and the car lurched forward. And he got away. So this is where the story gets even more interesting. So the convicts fled, and they hid in a drainage ditch out by a cotton field. And the next morning, they could see the Mississippi River levee in the distance. And all kinds of highway patrol, justice of the peace, sheriffs, police, They had all converged on Benoit because they knew the convicts were there. Well, some hoe-hands came to this particular field where the four convicts were hiding, and the the hoe-hands, you know, didn't know anything. They just, you know, got out and walked out in the cot and started working, and the convicts jumped up, and, you know, they had guns, and made them take their shirts off and, you know, the convicts put their shirts on, put their clothes on, because convicts had were wearing what they call ring arounds, you know, the black and white horizontal striped suits that the convicts wore in those days. And so they put the hoe-hands clothes on and, and told the hoe-hands to lie down in that ditch and do not move. And the convicts started hoeing out across the cotton patch and the law enforcement cars speeding down the road here, there, and yonder, you know, they just look like ubiquitous hoe-hands out in the field. They didn't even give them any thought. But they finally reached the other side of the field and threw the hose down and ran to the levee and went up over the levee and down into a swampy area that led to the Mississippi River. And that's where they were and stayed that night. And they split up. And so uh, 
Leopard and one other convict, Kilgore, they were on their own now, and they made their way to the Mississippi River. And it was nighttime, it was a full moon. They could see the towboats across the river, and they could hear the sound of the towboats. They could see the water churning on the river. And uh, so they had a little conversation about swimming the river to Arkansas, which would have been foolhardy, you know, the Mississippi River. You don't want to do that. Uh, And they both lost their nerve. And uh, so they went back, middle of the night. They crawled back over the levee and down some uh, drainage ditches and actually got out of the, the cordon that had been put off, put around that entire area by law enforcement. And the next morning, they were just walking down a field road when a truck pulled out, it was uh, some parchment guards, you know, with shotguns. And, of course, they were captured and taken back to parchment. And that, uh, that ended the, the 62 to escape. One more break. Back in a moment. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Wheel! 
Cat and Jethro, Box of Oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the Box of Oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. And we have returned for the final time. Yeah, there are so many interesting stories in your book, and each one of these escapes is fascinating in its own right. But I have to ask you about the 1968 escape, because it involves you. Can you talk about how he gets out in 68, and how you meet him as as a very young man while you are working on your father's farm? Yeah, we had a farm just north of Grenada, Mississippi, which is in the north central part of the state. And I had just graduated from high school and it was June, late June. And I was down in the field cultivating uh, soybeans, you know, plowing soybeans. Had just a very typical day, hot summer day. And I didn't know anything about parchment. I think parchment was maybe 60 miles away as the crow flies, but longer than that. But I didn't know anything about parchment. But I was just down in the field that day and saw two fellows coming up our field road. They had on shabby clothes. Well, it was very unusual for anybody to cut across our farm. So I, rather than make another round on the tractor, I stopped because the truck was there and we had tools we had guns in the truck, just typical farmer things. And uh, so I waited on them, and they were—they looked pretty weary. They, they walked up. The small, red-headed fellow did all the talking. Of course, I didn't know who they were. Being overly friendly, hey, man, how you doing? And, uh, you know, I wasn't saying much. He said, we, uh, we've been walking all day. Do you know where the nearest town is at? Well, I thought that was really strange because Grenada was only a mile away. You know, I knew right off something. I didn't know what it was, but something wasn't right about all of this. And I said, well, Grenada's about uh, two miles south. Well, can you give us a ride to Grenada? And I said, uh, no, I'm supposed to be working. And then he said, uh, well, can you give us a drink of water? Well, I had water on the truck, and I got the thermos handed it to him, and he poured some in the top and gave it to his partner. Well, they kept on about the ride. I was beginning to get a bit of a knot in my stomach. I was hoping, you know, somebody would come down the field road, my dad or my granddad, my brother, but I was just alone. So finally, you know, I thought, okay, look, I'll give them a ride. I'll put them out at the edge of town. There'll be somebody else's problem. So I said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll give you a ride. I'll get in. So they both got in the truck, and I got behind the steering wheel. And the small red-headed fellow was sitting in the middle next to me. So I started down the field road. I probably hadn't gone 50 or 60 feet when there was, you know, movement to my right, and all of a sudden I felt something poke in my side. And, you know, I realized what it was. It was a pistol. And uh, he said, we're escaped convicts from Parchman. Stop the truck and get out, which I did, of course. He slid out behind me with the gun on me. And, I, you know, I literally thought they were getting ready to kill me right there. 
I just oh, imagined, you know, they would drag me out into the beans. The beans were pretty tall by then. I wouldn't be found for days. And um, the uh, dark-haired man said, uh, don't kill him. And uh, the red-haired man, who was Albert Leopard, I didn't know who he was, said, what's it to you? And he said, I don't want no blood on my hands. So uh, I'll call him Leopard, even though I, I didn't know who he was at, in the t- at the time. Told me to get back in the truck, which I got in and got in the middle. Dark-haired man came around to drive, and Albert Leopard was on the passenger shotgun side with the pistol on me. So I started driving up the field road and pulled up on Highway 51, and they wanted to know where the nearest state line was. And I said, well, well, Tennessee is 100 miles north. So they turned uh, north on Highway 51. Well, you know, neither one of these guys were that that big. And, of course, I'd worked on a farm all my life. I'm not like a big guy, but in pretty good shape and all. And, you know, it was just... I was just thinking, what, what, what do I do? What do I do? But I was trying to, you know, be real calm. And, uh, you know, I realized if I grabbed that gun, this redheaded guy, you know, we would, we'd struggle, but maybe I could get the door open and we'd both fall out the door. And, you know, it was like, uh, you know, most people can remember diving off the high dive. You know, you just, I was right there but I couldn't quite make myself do that. And I'm, I'm just really lucky that I didn't do it because I had no idea who these fellows were and what they were capable of, and they would have made real quick work of me. So we're heading on up 51. The truck is almost unempty. They want to know if I have any money. And I say, no, I, I don't have any money. But actually, I had about 30 dollars in the pocket of the truck which in 1968 that was a pretty pretty good bit of money i had my own little small herd of cattle in high school and i had sold a a yearling bull and i had some money left over but i just said no i don't have any money so they went on up and they pulled into our little country store out there a place called geesland's corner i asked them what they were getting ready to do and uh the red-haired guy said, we're, we're going to rob this store. And, of course, I knew Mr. Giesland. He was elderly. And I said, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Look, look, I've got money. There's money in the pocket of the truck. You can have my money. So Leopard opened the pocket of the truck. Well, sure enough, the $30 was there in my wallet. And he found a couple of other things. He found a piece of paper and a pencil. He told me to write down my name and address, and uh, in so many weeks, he would send me three times as much money. Of course, I didn't even realize at the time he was illiterate. He couldn't have read anything I'd written anyway. And he he found a, a box of 22 cartridges because on the gun rack of the truck was my brother's 30-30 Marlin rifle. It was fully loaded. I knew that. And I had a 22 uh, Western pistol hanging in a scabbard there uh, on the gun rack. So as we go on down and they get gas further down the road 
and get on I-55 headed for Memphis. Uh, Leopard tells me to take the pistol down and tells me to load it. You know, of course, he's got a gun on me. What can I do? So I load the pistol and give it to his partner who's driving. And on the way up, uh, you know, he's actually kind of trying to be friendly. He's, you know, what what do y'all grow on that farm? And, you know, I said, well, soybeans, cotton, milo. Oh, I know all about that. I know all about that. But I still, I didn't know what was going to happen in the next five minutes if these guys were going to kill me. And so I figured that the, maybe the best thing I can do is try to talk to him. So I asked the guy driving what he was in parchment for, and he said armed robbery. And then I asked the red-haired guy, and he said murder. Well, it got real quiet then. I didn't, I didn't ask any more questions. <laughs> right. So we're headed up. Uh, we're approaching Memphis. South Haven, and uh, they tell me that there are probably going to be roadblocks on the state line, and if any shooting breaks out, to get on the floorboard. And uh, I say, look, I say, look, guys, if you'll if you'll just let me out of the truck right here on the side of the interstate, I'll find my way back to Grenada. I'll get on my tractor. I won't say a word to anybody. If you'll just let me before any shooting breaks out. So they were mulling over that, I suppose. And But the next thing I knew, we were in Memphis. There were no roadblocks. And they pulled off on a, a street in Memphis, stopped the truck. They both got out. I don't remember there being any conversation at all. However, at one point, they had talked about the, the possibility of taking me on to Florida with them. So I think that was their intent to try to get to Florida. But they both got out of the truck. Uh, John Parker handed my pistol to Albert Leopard, and Leopard laid it on the floorboard. And he gave me $4 for gas money. So that was, you know, enough to get me back home. And they turned and walked away. I pulled down to an ESO station. I told the attendant what had happened. But before I pulled down there, they're walking away, and I'm, you know, I slide behind the steering wheel, and I'm thinking, what should I do? I mean, my family doesn't even know where I am. I'm, I'm in Memphis, and uh, I told these guys I, I wouldn't, you know, if they just let me go and not hurt me, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd just go home and, and you know, a promise is a promise, but thank goodness, I mean, I thought, hey, I could be, an, I'd be considered an accomplice. So I pulled into an ESO station. I told the attendant everything that had happened. So he uh, called Memphis police, and two detectives came down, and they interviewed me. And I told them everything that happened in the bean field, Mr. Giesland almost being robbed, two convicts. They said they, were not, they would not be taken alive. So the detectives walked over across the room, and, you know, they were talking between themselves. They came back, and they said, look, we haven't heard of any escape in the Mississippi Delta from Parson Penitentiary, we actually think that you are a runaway and you're trying to get attention. Well, I, you know, I won't even say what I was thinking in my mind. And I thought, you know, I've done my duty. I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going home. I just got up to leave. And they said, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let us do some, uh, let us make some phone calls. 
Well, they called Parchman and determined that there was a manhunt, a current manhunt underway in the Mississippi Delta for Albert Leopard and John Parker. So they took me on down to police headquarters. I uh, had to do a taped interview with the FBI because they had crossed state lines with me. Then I had to pick them out of a lineup, and the uh, police assured me that they would not be able to see me. So, you know, just a classic lineup. I picked the two guys out. Then they took me to a small office cubicle where they were both sitting and asked me one more time, are these the two guys? And I said, yeah. And the redheaded guy, Albert Leopard, snarled that he had never seen me before. Of course, they had told me back in the truck that if I snitched on them, they knew where I lived and they were they would come back for me, you know, trying to put their bluff in on me. So uh, they were taken away. The police asked me if I knew anyone in Memphis. Well, my aunt and uncle actually lived in Midtown, Addie and Paris Taylor. So they called my aunt and uncle who came down to the police station. My aunt brought a, a big piece of German chocolate cake for me. And uh, I really appreciated that. And um, my parents came from Grenada. My sister said she remembered she was uh, only 10 years old, but the phone call came, came in to the farm, to our home. My mother answered the phone, and my sister, Julie, said uh, that Mama screamed. She said, I'd never heard her scream before. But she and my dad got in the car, and, they, of course, they went to Memphis. They got me, um, rode back with them. I honestly cannot remember how the truck got back to Grenada. Uh, but uh, we got back. It was big news in the paper because my dad was in the legislature uh, all my growing up years. And, uh, you know, legislators, son kidnapped and all that. So, I, you know, I told the story over and over to my friends and, and uh, it all kind of came to an end. And uh, a month or so later, my mother was down at the state capitol in Jackson. And she ran into, bumped into the director of the Department of Corrections. And she, and, you know, he said, hello, Miss Butler, how are you? And she just wanted to know one thing. What, what, was Albert Leopard and John Parker in maximum security? Well, he kind of, you know, took him back. He bumbled back a little bit there and said, uh, no, ma'am, actually, no. Well, she marched straight into the governor's office, passed the secretary and went in his office and demanded that Albert Leopard and John Parker be put in maximum security. And the governor got on the phone right there and called Parchman. So we always laughed about that, about the governor, you know, backing down to a, an irate mother. So many years passed, and I was interviewing a fellow named Ray Callahan in Ackerman, Mississippi, and he had been a prison guard at Parchman during that time. And he said, you know, the the warden, the word came down from the warden to uh, take Albert Leopard and John Parker out of the general camps and put them in maximum security, and I always wondered why we were asked to do that and what had happened. So that kind of verified the the other end of that story. So it just um, kind of, you know, it, it came to an end. 
A few years later after college, I was working at the state capitol, and my mother called me down there, and she had heard that Albert Leopard had broken out of parchment, and she was so worried because he had, you know, told me that he knew where I lived, and he would, you know, he would come for me, and, you know, I sure, it's five years ago, and by mama, he doesn't even, he doesn't know where I am, you know, but I, she wasn't quite convinced, but that's pretty much what happened to me. But I, there is one little thing that I left out, and that is after I was kidnapped and I got back to Grenada, it was all over, I was cleaning out the pocket of the truck one day and found two 1922 silver dollars in the pocket. And, I mean, Albert Leopard had to have put them in there for me. And I've never figured that out. And I have those two silver dollars today. And, in fact, when I was doing my interviews and talking with some of his family, and they're very clannish people, it's kind of hard to break in there and get them to talk about anything, I would show them those two silver dollars that, uh, that Albert had left me. And uh, it was a good icebreaker. And I have those silver dollars today. Yeah, what a story. So this happened 55 years ago. When you retell that story, do you feel what you felt that day? Do you still experience that fear? Some people that find themselves in a situation like you did, where they're facing death, often need years of, of therapy are diagnosed with with PTSD how, how did you do you cope with it all you know I've, I've, I'm often act, asked that question and uh, I can't say that I ever really had PTSD although I, I didn't pick up hitchhikers <laughs> that's for sure uh, right. no um, you know, I'm, I mean, I was frightened. I, I thought it when he pulled that gun on me in the bean field, I, I thought, man, that is it. I just bought the farm. This guy's getting ready to kill me. I mean, you know, it's just a, a just a paralyzing fear. But now, as far as that that emotion, that fear, that paralyzing kind of fear, it it didn't it it didn't really move into the the future with me. It was actually an event when my my wife asked me, "Why don't you write about it?" And uh, it had happened like forty years before, and you know you forget a lot in forty years, you really do. And I, I would lie in bed at night and just let that scene in the bean field just kind of float in my mind and kind of coax those emotions back and how it felt, the bean field, how it looked, seeing them coming up the field road, what they said to me and all that, to pull all that back and recreate that. And, and I think I did a really good job of remembering all of that. But uh, I never, uh, I, and, and maybe I'm forgetting this uh, to some degree, because I uh, you know, the thing is, right after the kidnapping happened in 1968, that June, 
I had three high school friends, and we had been planning our senior trip all of 68, 67, 68. And about three weeks later, we, we set out a truck, a camper, and uh, drove to Arizona and up through Utah and Colorado, Montana, Canada, came down the West Coast all the way to San Diego, back through El Paso, you know, like 8,500 miles or so. So it was such a, you know, kind of a monumental trip for us. And uh, I don't know. I just, I, I didn't think about it too much. I really didn't. Right, I'm yeah. Sure some level, some level, I mean, that uh, I'm sure if I encountered something even today where I was in a situation of danger, or confrontation with someone, I'm sure that those emotions would resurface, I would imagine. Well, well, there's a lot that we didn't cover, including the death of Elbert Leopard, and we can save that for readers, but it doesn't end well for him. <laughs> yeah, it's very, very riveting. And uh, I would think that a reader, if you, if you have an interest in, in buying the book, which, uh, you know, certainly you can get it on Amazon or through your, your local bookstore. And uh, it's an audio book through uh, Tantor Media. And also it was uh, on Inside, CBS Inside Edition online. So if you go to YouTube, you, you can see a, a real abbreviated, which is really more about what happened to me that day. But, uh, yeah, his... Uh, his meeting his maker is quite a riveting story in itself that uh, I think if you enjoy a, a, a gripping account, that would, be, that would certainly be one right there. Well, well, thank you so much for your time. Eric, thank you so much for giving me an opportunity to talk about Crooked Snake, and I, I hope uh, it would pique people's interest to consider... Uh, getting a copy and uh, and see what they think about it firsthand. And thank you so much. Again, I have been speaking to Lovejoy Boatler. He is the author of Crooked Snake, The Life and Crimes of Albert Leopard. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow.